Genesis chapter 1, or 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah, tells, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will, I swear, or I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs will, you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant in Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for your word to us, and we pray now that you would give us eyes to see wonderful things from it. Teach and instruct and build us up, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Growing up, my father, when he would leave for work, he left early in the morning before we saw, uh, before we were up, even especially in the summer months when we could sleep in a little bit. He would often leave lists of things to do, tasks to do. And on one occasion, he left uh, instruction for me to clean out a fence row that was overgrown, but he wrote on the piece of paper, don't cut down the walnut tree. Well, I knew the fence row that he was talking about, and I knew where the walnut tree was down perpendicular fence row, and I thought, there's no way I'm getting down to that walnut tree, so off to work I went without asking questions or getting any clarifying information. As you might imagine, there was another walnut tree, and when he came home from work that day, I learned that there had been another walnut tree. The walnut tree was no more. Instead of asking for clarity, I made an assumption, and based on that assumption, I made a mistake, and it was a mistake that I learned an important lesson from. Um, We learn from our mistakes. We learn from our trials. We learn from difficult things. We learn in a way that we don't learn when everything goes right or when everything's comfortable. There's just, it's just a way that pain, discomfort, we might call it suffering, has a way of instructing us. James tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We've seen Abraham and Sarah go through many trials. Some are things that happened around them and to them, and other things were things that they did, they chose to do. And yet God was proving himself faithful and was working in them steadfastness to prepare them for what lay ahead. In Genesis 21, God puts his faithfulness on display before Abraham and Sarah. He provides the son of promise. It's what we've been waiting for. It's this, uh, the, the, the seed, the heir, the, the one who would inherit the promise that God had given. 25 years into their old age now, It seemed like it was impossible, and yet God gives the son. He also affirms the inheritance belongs to Isaac, not to Ishmael, which is backwards because Ishmael's the oldest. It doesn't make sense. He was the firstborn. And further, we see him secure the inheritance of the land in this treaty with Abimelech. And while God is certainly putting his faithfulness on display in this passage, he is also setting the stage for what would arguably be Abraham's greatest trial that he would face when he was commanded to, uh, to sacrifice Isaac. And we'll get there next week. So the sovereign grace of God, we see it on display in the life of Abraham and Sarah, and it's the same sovereign grace that is work at work in our lives. It's the same sovereign grace that carries us through trials so that we may grow stronger and that we may point to the glorious grace that has been shown to us. And so beginning in verse 1, we're told that the Lord visited Sarah and she conceived and bore a son as had been promised. Now you would think possibly that with all the hype coming up on this promised child that we would get 
a little more in the narrative than these few verses. Like, there would be more, you know, it's just kind of matter of fact, almost like a, you know, a second-page news article that this happened. But there's more to it when we look at it than you might see at first glance. Notice the emphasis on the sovereignty of God. There's a lot of repetition here. Repetition is not by chance. Moses didn't just stick that in there. He's making a point with it. Look in verse 1. The Lord visited as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Verse 2. Sarah conceived and bore a son at the time which God had spoken. The narrator is drawing our attention to the fact that God keeps his promises. He does what he says he will do. And the reason that we need to hear this over and over again, and we say this over and over again, is because we forget this over and over again. We're just like Abraham and Sarah. We doubt. God had said, I'm going to give you an heir, a son. They took matters into their own hands, came up with their own plan. They continually doubted God, and yet he is showing that he will do what he says. He is making clear that he... He made happen what was seemingly impossible, this miraculous birth, and it was at just the right time. We may have wished it was a different time. I'm sure they wished it had been earlier, and often that is the case when it comes to God's timing. But His timing is always perfect. His faithfulness is without measure, and His ways are always good to us. Abraham obeys God and names his son Isaac, which means laughter. Isaac means laughter. Of course, there's irony there as well because what had Abraham and Sarah both done when they were given the promise? They laughed. They laughed because they were old. They were well beyond childbearing age. So cut them some slack, right? We would have done the same thing. It seemed impossible. How was this going to happen? But God would have the last laugh, wouldn't he? And their laughter of doubt would be turned into laughter of joy at the birth of Isaac. Abraham also obeys God in circumcising Isaac. On the eighth day, the sign of the covenant applied in faith to the son of promise. And the covenant would not be broken by circumstances, whether it was the age of his parents, whether it was their doubt, or even their own sin, God's covenant is sure. And how comforting is that to us, that God's plans are not thwarted even by our own sin. God will carry out his purpose and his plans at all times. Sarah then comments, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? God had made a barren woman the mother of a covenant, of his covenant nation, of his covenant people. That's our heritage. Our heritage spiritually as sons and daughters of Abraham is that we came from one who was unable to have children, barren her entire life, and yet in her whole old age, God gave her children. And so the laughter of doubt that was turned to laughter of joy for Abraham and Isaac also becomes our joy then when we see the promise ultimately fulfilled in Christ's coming, who would be joy to the world, right? He would be the joy of the world, the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. But the birth of Isaac doesn't make all their problems go away, does it? Their problems still remain because they've got a dysfunctional family, and that's the next thing we see. You fast forward a couple years, Isaac is weaned, two to three years, scholars say it it was typical at this time. 
So he's a toddler, he's running around, Abraham throws the feast, and it's at this occasion when Sarah witnesses Ishmael, who's now at least 16 years old, laughing at Isaac. Now the word for, for Isaac is laughter, and the word for laughter is Isaac, so we can say he was literally Isaacing at him when you look at the text. Or when you see that Sarah says, God gave me laughter, she's saying God gave me Isaac. So you can see the wordplay. But this particular word for laughing, this form of the word Isaac, is modified to mean a different type of laughing. It's the word for mocking. Ishmael isn't just laughing about Isaac or laughing at him uh, carelessly or or, um, without care, but he's laughing at him with a mocking intent. And that's how the NIV translates it, and I think it's right. He's literally Isaacing. And Paul explains that his laughing, his mocking laughter was actually persecution. Galatians 4.28 says, Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise, but just, at the, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac. So whether his laughing was in childish ignorance or whether it was, and I think more likely, kind of looking down on this toddler like, this little kid's going to take away the inheritance, uh-uh. Whatever was in his heart, the, the narrator doesn't tell us, Sarah picks up on it. She perceives this as a threat. And her reaction is to tell Abraham, you've got to get him out of here. And she, she tells him to send him away. She says, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. You hear the disdain of a mother, the, both the disdain and the protectiveness of a mother in that statement. This is, this is my son. And she's got that protection, and she refers to Hagar, not by name, but that slave woman. But the irony again, who did all this? <laughs> Sarah was the one who came up with the idea, who said to, to Abraham, oh, I'm with, still without a child, go take Hagar, my slave woman, as your wife, and, and have a son through her. This was her fault, that she, she created this mess. And now she's telling Abraham to take Hagar and send her and the son away. Well, God comes to Abraham and says to him, do what your wife says. Regardless of what her past behavior had been, regardless of what the intentions were in her heart at this time, Abraham is to listen to his wife. And we're told in verse 11 that he is troubled or distressed by this. You can imagine why. He has had one child for a decade and a half, and one child only. This had been, this was his boy. Even though it was from this dysfunction, it was still a son. And he was just getting to that age where it's really fun for dads and sons to do things together, right? He's, they're, out, they're out hunting, they're out fishing, they're out doing what dads and sons do. And now all of a sudden, Sarah, who, you know, up to this point, Isaac has just been weaned all those first two or three years. It's all about mama and baby. Dad's had very little to do with the picture. And you're saying, send, send the, this one away? Is, he's all I've ever known. Then you can understand why Abraham is distressed by this. And so God comes to Abraham and reassures him that Ishmael would not perish, that he wouldn't die, but would be made into a great nation because of Abraham. Really, ultimately, because of God. Because of God's covenant with Abraham, Ishmael, still though he's not the son of promise, is still going to receive benefits of the covenant. 
Again, the sovereign grace of God shown to the son of the flesh to Ishmael. And God says because it's because he's your offspring. So Abraham obeys God. He sends the mother and son out with water and food to go into the wilderness. And as you might imagine, it doesn't last long in that wilderness. It's hot. And so before long, it seems like imminent death faces them. And so when Hagar believes her son is about to die, she places him under a bush. She can't stand to be next to him and watch him die. And she goes away and says, let, let me not look on the death of the child. And she weeps and cries out. But in verse 17, it says that it's the prayer of Ishmael that God responds to and sends his angel to Hagar. Again, it's interesting here, the son of the flesh still gets the benefit of the covenant. The angel says, fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy. And then he opens her eyes to see a nearby well, and she goes and gets water, and they are both rejuvenated. And then in verse 20, and God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. We'll come back to Ishmael later. Uh, there's, there's some things that we could un- unpack here, but he, he would go on. His life wasn't over, and he would indeed become the father of what God calls a great nation, great meaning in number, a large nation. Because he was the offspring of Abraham, he would still receive the benefits of the covenant. The, gov- the covenant benefits go to our children regardless of what choices they make. And that's an incredible promise to us. It's why we apply the sign of the covenant in baptism. We don't know what the outcome will be, but we do so in faith, trusting God with the results. And it's a reminder to us to never give up on our kids, to never give up regardless of where they are or what they've been doing or for how long they've been doing it, even though they don't respond the way that we want them to or when they want them to. Charles Spurgeon wrote, We must never cease to pray for our children until they cease to breathe. No case is hopeless while Jesus lives. No case is hopeless while Jesus lives. Pray for your kids. In the final scene of the chapter, we see Abimelech again. He comes to Abraham and wants to make a treaty between the two of them. Abimelech is a Philistine king. He's a pagan, right? Uh, He is from Gerar. We've already had this one interaction that we looked at in the previous chapter. He comes with his military commander, And Moses is accounting all of this to help us to see that from a human perspective, Abimelech has all the power and the position. I mean, he's the one who's been in the land. Abraham is the sojourner. Abraham doesn't have, from what we can tell, a military commander. Abimelech comes with his military commander, and you might imagine probably an entourage. And yet we find that Abimelech is a God-fearer. We saw this again in the previous chapter, and here as well when he states, God is with you in all that you do. Verse 23, now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with, and with the land where you have sojourned. A reminder that even though Abraham is the alien, God is giving him the land. Abimelech recognizes God's power and blessing in Abraham's life. He wants to be connected to that another sign of God's sovereign grace. And so he requests this treaty, and he wants it not only for his own sake, but also for his children, for his descendants. And they would enjoy peace.
for, for, for some uh, uh, decades before eventually we know what is going to happen uh, between the people of Israel and the Philistines, but the peace did endure for a while. What the narrator doesn't point out but that we see happening is that God is giving the land to Abraham, and he's doing it in a way that we might not expect. It's not through military might or through takeover or through power, uh, the power of man, but slowly and surely God is giving Abraham the land according to his sovereign grace. First of all, we see the favor with the king. Abraham had really goofed things up with Abimelech. You know, he came in, he deceived him, he could have gotten everybody in a lot of trouble. Thankfully, God protected all parties and told Abimelech what was happening. But I would think that this king would not have want anything to do with Abraham after that. And yet, by sovereign grace, the king initiates the treaty. Second, we see him giving the well to Abraham. I mean, Abimelech could have easily said, the water under the well that you just dug has been mine for a long time. It ain't yours. And, you know, before you came here with all your lying, cheating ways, that water was mine. He, he doesn't do that. He responds again according to God's grace. He accepts the covenant agreement, and he ensures now Abraham has a stake in the land. And the seven sheep that were set apart then give the name to the city that's still there to this day. You can visit Beersheba. So to honor God for his faithfulness, he plants this tamarisk tree as a testimony in the place. And that tree's roots would go down, and that tree would grow up and grow out as a testimony to what would be happening in Abraham's life as he possesses the land that God has promised to him. And there where he planted the tree, verse 33 says, He called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. This name is a unique name given to God here by Abraham, meaning uh, God is eternal. He's pointing to the eternality of the covenant, that it, it, it spans all times, that it will not change, that it will not fade away. Think of how Paul expresses it. We, we read this this morning in one of our prayers, that before the foundations of the world, God chose us in Christ. Before time ever began. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. The everlasting God who was, who is, who is to come, blessed and kept Abraham and blesses and keeps us as well. So God's given Abraham the promised son, Isaac. He affirms the inheritance for Isaac by sending Ishmael away. He staked out a piece of the land of promise for Abraham. All of these gifts of his sovereign grace to Abraham. I'm the youngest of four children, and I was the last to get married, last to start a family. When each of my siblings had their first child, my dad made a cradle, a wooden cradle. He's a woodworker. made a wooden cradle for each of the first grandchildren. And he made them out of oak, and they're beautiful, and they're golden, and they're big, uh, but they're, they're kind of heirloom-like. They'll last a long time because they're well-made. Do you want to know what he made Micah's cradle out of when Micah was born? Micah's cradle is made out of walnut. And I love walnut because of this. You see, the tree that I cut down didn't die. It grew back. 
And it grew back not as a single trunk, which it had been, but it grew back as three trunks that now tower over my parents' garage. And every time I go back to their house, I always look at the tree, the walnut tree that I cut down, the walnut tree that I almost lost my life over. (laughs) And I remember God's faithfulness. It's a picture to me of what God is in the business of doing. He is redeeming our lives. God takes what is lost, what is dead, what is stolen, what is broken, and He restores it. The barren woman gives birth. The infant toddler, the second born, gets the benefit of the inheritance over the firstborn older son. The land of the others is willingly handed over to Abraham. You see, God's ways are higher than our ways. They're not our ways. They're higher and they're better. They're good. And they sometimes come, His ways sometimes come, through shattered dreams, through sick bodies, through broken relationships, through unjust rulings, even through our very sin. And that's why His ways amaze us. His grace is indeed amazing. If it made sense, we'd get used to it or we'd be bored by it or worse, we'd think we deserved it or that we had earned it. But God takes the upside downness of our lives and He flips it, He redeems it, He sanctifies it, and He draws us to Himself showing that He is all-powerful and all-good. This is the gospel's very doing. God takes a symbol of horror and shame and makes it the symbol of and work of salvation, the cross. The promise, of course, was a son, it was land, it was an inheritance, but it was so much more than that. You see, those were the means, really, to the ultimate promise. They were the means to the one who would come, the promised one who would fulfill all things. God gives us not just land and inheritance, And a son, he gives us himself. That's what he did when he sent his son. He gave us himself. And so now we are forgiven and adopted and we are restored into a right relationship because of what Christ has done. Bought at a price, we are made his possession and we are restored to him so that we can now commune with him and never be separated from him again. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. He has come and completed everything that these other promises pointed toward, and He has complete, uh, confirm, or He has accomplished them completely in His work. So that now, because of Christ, you and I are called children of promise. Galatians 4.28, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. That's one you can cross-stitch into a pillow, right? (laughs) You are a child of promise. Like Isaac, you're a child of promise. We're now co-heirs with Christ. We now get the inheritance as well. Romans 8, 16, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We're not even the second born. And we get to become heirs. And finally, we are now citizens of a land that is perfect 
in every way. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the sovereign grace of our God has worked to bring us this incredible drama of redemption because of God's love for us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has, has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at Your grace toward us, the love that You have shown us to make us Your children. We look back at Your faithful uh, commitment to the promises that you made and how you delivered on each one at just the right time and in just the right way. And yet, Lord, we confess that we still doubt and we still struggle. We still question what you're up to and how you're working. And so would you settle deeply in our hearts like that tamarisk tree that was planted? Would you take the roots of your love down deep into our hearts that we would know with great assurance that you are indeed doing all things well and that you will complete what you have started. I pray that you would raise us up with Christ and cause us to see your glory, that you would help us, Lord, to not find our identity in our circumstances, even in our own failures or the things that happen to us, but that we would look to the one who has made us his possession, that we would look to you in faith and trust you to do all things well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.